All right, tribe. Now, listen, this is a special episode of A Tribe Called Yes, and we're going to venture a little bit off of the customary track. We're going to listen to a conversation between me and a man by the name of Marshall Davis. Marshall Davis is the public information officer of the Texas Division of the Sons of Confederate Veterans. I know that's a long title, but the reason why I brought Marshall on to the show is because in this time when race is at the forefront of our country's public debate, it's been an issue since the founding of our nation. I thought it was important to practice the empathy that I preach about. And so I invited Marshall to speak to my students, 150 here at the University of Texas. And I didn't say a word during his talk, but I did tell him that I wanted to get him on the show because I wanted to have a frank discussion on race. So tune in, tribe, and listen to this conversation with Marshall Davis. Marshall, welcome to the tribe. Thank you, sir. Let me tell you something. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. We are hitting around 50 episodes, and this is going to be unlike any other episode (laughs) we've had. So just to give some people some background, let's say we could go to your junior year in high school, pull you out of class, and ask you, Marshall, what are you going to be when you grow up? What would the answer have been? Probably show business. Show business. All right, what what piece of it? We're talking... Management. Management, management, yes. Now, you grew up in Virginia. I did, in the Shenandoah Valley. Shenandoah Valley. A kid growing up in the Shenandoah Valley, thinking about management, Hollywood, show business, where did that germinate? Where where did that come from? My dad and I were always involved in circuses when (laughs) they would come into the area and for summer vacations, either he and I or I would join a circus and travel. Hmm. mostly in management on circuses. So did you travel outside of Virginia? Were you yes, all over? Yes. Okay. Uh, so what kinds of places did you see? And what, what time period are we talking about here? What, what are the years? 70s and 80s. Okay. Uh, I would spend summer vacations from high school and college on a little show playing six towns in seven days hmm. in Pennsylvania, in New York. Hmm. In 82, I went to Alaska with the circus. Hmm. From the, the circus was from Texas, and it went as far as Fairbanks, hmm. went up the Alaska Highway, and I was the advance agent, hmm. traveling ahead of the circus, putting up posters, checking with licenses and sponsors, and writing a map for the to show the trucks how to get to the lot and where yeah. the low tension lines were and things. So we do a lot of advance work. You saw a good cross section of the country then. I did. What were some things that that you saw? Um, and, and what are some things that you sort of learned about other people that you didn't get in Virginia? One of the things that I relearned, Winchester, where I grew up, was a small town. Small, we talking? Uh, 300 people in my graduating class. Hmm. Small town, never locked the front door, wouldn't go anywhere. You wouldn't see six, eight people you knew. Hmm. So what I learned, a lot of the circus towns were really small towns, that the difference I saw is between small towns and big cities. That there is a very different attitude among North, South, Alaska, New York, Texas, wherever, that there is a difference in the attitude of people in a smaller town and in a bigger city. How relevant is that today in 2017? I mean, that's the, you know, that's one of the big uh, fault lines I feel like we're discovering. Not that it's been new here, but I think the last election has really 
reemphasize for people that there's this small town rural versus urban divide that in many ways can dictate how people view government, Mm -hmm. their lives, their situations. So you saw that in the 70s and 80s. I do, and I still see it here. Uh, I've lived in Austin since 77, and I've watched this big city with a small town feel (laughs) become a big city. (laughs) And I will travel to Bastrop, Lockhart, and even 30, 45 minutes out of Austin, there is a great small town, say hi to the person on the street feel (laughs) that I don't see in Austin anymore. Yeah. Now let's. What's your day job before we before you jump into the conversation? <laughs> what's your day job? What are you doing between eight and five? I split my time between having shops at Renaissance festivals in Texas, and working in surgery as a X ray tech, hmm. taking I, r- running a fluoroscope while doctors are doing surgery. Yeah, how long have you been doing on the, on the surgery side? Thirty years, thirty three years, years. thirty three years, and. You know, now we can kind of move into I reached out to you probably about six weeks ago. And I teach for those of you in the tribe who don't know, I teach a class called Game Plan for Winning at Life. Teach it three times a year. Uh, The classes comprise each semester, 50 percent athletes, 50 percent non-athletes. And we talk about leadership and financial management and under leadership. Connection is one of the, the, the major prongs and, and areas that we focus on. And we talk about vulnerability and empathy. Um, Dr. Brene Brown, her research and the need for empathy. And so when I got the email that President Fimbus was taking down the four Confederate statues uh, about a month ago, I immediately thought, how can I use this occurrence as a teaching lesson in my class? And be somewhat agnostic about it. I mean, my class will tell you they probably know how I fall along race and politics from my discussions in class. But I thought this is a great opportunity for me to bring in someone with a view that may be misunderstood and to let students have the form. So we had you in class today. It was great. It was great. I hope I hope it went well, because I said, listen, I'm going to take myself out of it. I introduced you and. Why I asked about your day job is that you are you are the public information officer. Yes, sir. Of the Sons of Confederate Veterans, the Texas Division. Perfect. Yes. Okay, I got it down pat. (laughs) Got it down pat. Um, And so you began the the talk with a PowerPoint presentation. Obviously, people who are listening to this wouldn't have seen it, but just kind of talk about what your overview consisted of before you took some questions. Well, I started with some history of Texas in the 1860s to try to give the students an idea of what the war was about and what would make citizens and politicians leave a country. Hmm. Uh, There was much unrest. There was unfair taxation. The cotton crops went to Europe and the federal government taxed that cotton crop. The South contributed more in tariffs to the federal government than the North. Mm -hmm. But the tariffs in benefits back to the citizens of the South was not being returned in kind. So the South felt they were supporting the federal government. So I started out with a little history uh, of Texas in the 1860s and spoke about the secession convention where delegates came from around the state to vote whether Texas should take the bold and daring move Mm -hmm. to leave the United States and join this new fledgling nation, Uh, 76 percent in January of 1861, 70 percent, I'm sorry, 95 percent of those delegates 
voted, yes, we don't feel the federal government is working for us. We're going to join this nation. A month later, it was put to a vote, a referendum vote by the citizens of Texas who voted 95 percent to leave the union and form their own nation. Uh, I had a slide that said 70,000 Texans joined the Confederate armed forces. Now, on that point, you know, that's one to give some people some backdrop. I didn't I told the class I wasn't going to ask any questions. I was the referee. I was there to tee it up for you to 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 present the information. And then I allowed students to have the entire balance of time in class to ask questions. And one thing I was itching to ask this, (laughs) this, this point of choosing to secede from the union. I I heard you use terminology like heroes, right? Um, Why shouldn't we look at them as traitors? Right. I mean, and, and you and I have talked about history is a lot more liberal arts than it is a science. And so it's all up for interpretation. But why shouldn't we look at those at the at those rebels and and uh, Confederates as traitors? That brings up a lot of constitutional questions. Well, uh, I, I had two years of constitutional law. So oh, I, well, at the time when the nation was formed, the states believed they were sovereign that they were by choice in this union of states. They also felt that the Constitution gave them the right to leave the union. I believe, and you may know better than I, the Bill of Rights or the Constitution says, if the government, and I'm paraphrasing, if the government does not work for a people, the people can abolish that government and form a new one. This is in the wake of or in honor of the colonies who came to North America as English citizens and felt soon that they weren't being represented and taxed fairly back in England, so they formed their own nation. But by 1861, it's pretty settled law that a state didn't have a legitimate legal right to secede from the Union. Now, I hear you and you're talking about— you know, I know some of the tribe listeners may be trying to tune us out because they're like, hey, they haven't had history in a long time. Um, Articles of Confederation and then with the Constitution. But, you know, by 1861, it's settled law that a state doesn't have a legitimate claim to secede from the Union. But you feel like and, and I thought something that was very interesting was that you've likened the Confederates to the revolutionaries. Mm hmm. You don't see a distinction between those those two groups, only that we won one and lost and the well, other. Lost and, and so I, I think this is this is really I think it's really interesting because the narrative that gets told I think is interesting based on who wins. Yes, right, and the, what version you hear. Yes, the winners of a war get to write the history books. What 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 history did you hear growing up in Virginia? You talked about you were homeschooled. No, I was not homeschooled. Okay. It was Winchester Public Schools forever, and then Lynchburg College in South Central Virginia for my bachelor's degree. Okay, okay. But I, you mentioned homeschooling, and oh, I saw in the last ten years saw a homeschool module. Okay, but that was in like twenty ten. Okay, so that was recently. And so your version, what was the version of the Civil War that that you that the South was that? invaded? That Lincoln put together an army, and the majority of battles in the war between the states were fought in the South. So Lincoln, President Lincoln, never recognized the secession movement, never recognized the Confederate states as a separate nation. But yet he put together a draft and wanted originally 25,000 men 
to invade his own country, which is constitutionally illegal. Yeah, we in, and I know we've talked a, a lot about Lincoln, and you know I am one of those who I don't fall in this. Uh, you know, there's this deification of Lincoln that I think over the last fifty years has slowly been chipped away at by history a mm. bit. But you mentioned a quote from the Lincoln Douglas debates that that basically proved that you know Lincoln was. Um, he he was a man who was ready to preserve the union by any means. If that meant preserving slavery, I'll do it. Abolishing slavery, I'll do it. Um, abolishing slavery for some and keeping it for others, I'll do it. So for him, political expediency was the most important thing. Moving away from Lincoln, though, I thought that one of the more compelling questions that, that came up in the class revolved around slavery and the narrative from slaves that are now told to believe by African-Americans, similar to, you know, the sons of the Confederate veterans, all of you have a legitimate blood claim to a veteran. And similarly, African-Americans in this country have some blood claim to a slave. Mm -hmm. Um, It seems like your narrative, you want to trump the narrative that that the African-Americans have in some way. Am I I being unfair? I want to be open on this. Is that, do you see the ability for both of those to exist? Well, we do. We do. Mm. And in one of King's quotes in his I Had a Dream speech was, I have a dream when one day on the red soil of Georgia, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners can sit down at the table of brotherhood. So us with the sons of Confederate veterans want to honor our heroes. We do not want to let any other group not honor their heroes. There is a King statue on campus. King was a great statesman. Barbara Jordan has a, a bronze statue at Bergstrom Airport. Yeah. That's wonderful. And she was on a great, campus. Yeah. And here on campus, yeah. she was dean of the UT Law Department and a great contributor to America. Yeah. And so were the Confederate heroes as well. Yeah. Barbara Jordan at LBJ School. I think it was the LBJ School of Public mm. Affairs. And then Cesar Chavez, um, that was just 100 yards from our class as well. I just wonder... You know, this history point, it, it was it was really eye opening for me to hear the different interpretations of of history as told by my students in the class. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And for them, there was each some point that was very compelling. There were. They had great questions. They had, they had, they had great really questions. Impressed. Let me fast forward to today. Your thoughts on President Fenvis's move to take down the four statues just just over a month ago what was your how did you find out first can you remember how it i believe somebody in our group called me i i'm the public information officer so my (laughs) my job is to talk to the press and podcasts and students at ut yeah uh there is a law law section of our group as well a legal section and i believe they told me that these came down at 11 45 at night Okay, so I want you to take us to heart rate, temperature rising. Was this something that just completely surprised you? Were you taken well, aback? It did surprise me because when when there was a large cry from the student body to remove the Jefferson Davis statue from his place of prominence at the top of the South Mall on a pedestal between the South Mall and the main building, yeah, um, that had public input. There were hearings. President Fenvis had communicated with the Briscoe Center, who spent months preparing a home for this statue when it would be returned. 
that statue was respectfully restored and cleaned up and its years of of weathering on the South Mall were were clean and it came back with some due respect to then be displayed at the Briscoe Center. At the time, Fenvis said, we have no plans to remove the other four of the Littlefield statues from the South Mall. When he removed those four, he didn't talk to the Board of Regents. He didn't have any public hearing. He made that unilateral decision on his own and said in his statement to the Longhorns, to the students and alumni, that the Briscoe Center will receive these monuments. The Briscoe Center learned of that when they opened the American Statesman that morning. Yeah. So he didn't talk to the Briscoe Center ahead of time at all. And that speaks to the knee-jerk reaction. You know, I have to give you my, you know, I was sitting at my, on my couch when I received the email from Femis that went out. And I thought to myself, wow, what a bold move. Now, you know, in the higher education context, there aren't many decisions made in a unilateral fashion. I mean, we we have cornered the market on um, committees and panels and reviews. And so the fact that he made that decision, even in light of, as you mentioned, the history surrounding the the process that led up to the Jefferson Davis and Woodrow Wilson mm-hmm. statues being removed, I thought to myself, he must really think that there is a serious danger with having these statues on campus. It made me think, and I'm not speaking for him, but this is just my impression, that he thought that Charlottesville had really changed the game and that he was up against the clock that before students got on campus, he needed to do something. Do you think that's a compelling reason to, as the president of a public university, if you think there is a there is a potential uh, safety issue that it's... It's your duty to safeguard the safety of the Well, I'm curious if he'd received any inside information hmm. from any group or any citizen or any student or any board of director or region or anybody saying, oh, my God, what's happened in Charlottesville is going to happen here. We have to fix this right away. Yeah. I think your timing is correct that he wanted those gone before school started, before the semester started. Yeah. And I, I got to give him credit. I mean, I. You know, I'm not just saying it's because he's my boss, um, and I haven't spoken to him about this. Um, but I, I, I think that after Charleston, and then Charlottesville, and then we got to think about the rally at A and M that didn't happen, mm-hmm. and and all of the sort of the threats that were being lobbied back and forth. That uh, I got to give him credit for making a bold move in a public institution that uh, normally it would take a while to. To sort of think through. Let me ask you this. Okay, these, these statues. Um, what am I missing? Right? Because people have said that, that we're removing history. And I think to myself, if you look at the classes in the history department, I mean, we have more classes on Civil War history. I grew up in East Texas. I learned about the Civil War um, ad nauseum from the 6th through the 12th grade. Do the statues really take that much away from history? I mean, I... I it's hard for me to see how it eliminates or takes history away. I feel like it's still there. I think the removal of the statues removes history. Hmm. The reason George W. Littlefield, who at the time was the largest single financial benefactor to the university, yeah. wanted those statues there is those six men were his heroes. Those monuments there and being there 
his hope was would to engage conversation, was make people stop and go, Lee, huh, let's find out about Lee and what he did. Let's find out what people had to say about Lee, what he did, how his service as a United States military officer and as a Confederate officer. And let's look at Davis. Jefferson Davis was U.S. Secretary of War. U.S. He was a U.S. representative and a senator. Yeah. So his statue there was to Littlefield's heroes. And I think they were his heroes. Not only he as a Confederate major served under Lee and Davis, but the others, Wilson, for instance, Governor Hogg, Reagan Johnston were his heroes for noble things they did. And to remove them, now we're not discussing these heroes, these American founders. Well, we're doing it in my class. Yes, we that's are. I, brought and you I appreciate the chance. I mean, if it took taking them down to get me in your class, that's one silver lining. I mean, if a black man can, can bring in, <laughs> and you taught me something today. I didn't know that there were black members mm-hmm. of the Sons sure. of Confederate sure. Veterans. You're telling me there are black people in the Sons of Confederate Veterans who've traced their lineage yes, back sir. to Confederate soldiers. Wow. Yes, it was not a, pardon the pun, black and white issue. Well, it, I, I completely disagree with you. I think it was all it was, black and It white. was regional. It was regional. It was North versus South. Well, I think this is, I think, and Marshall, I think you and I can, I think we can come close to agreeing on this a little bit. Just like today, I think that we say, well, the country's politically divided. I think that what we're calling politics is really a proxy for race in a lot of mm. ways. That people are, they're veiling their racial views behind policy stances. Mm. And I think that when I hear regional, regional to me in the Civil War, in that period means South. And South then equates into slavery if, if it's me. I think, I think slavery, right? Um, if I, think I, if you, I can remind you... <laughs> Slavery was protected in the United States Constitution. Yes. Slavery was yes. in the threads of the founding of this country yes. from the time it started. Yes, I fought all of the founders. I, you're absolutely right. They punted on that decision. That three-fifths clause, you know, chipped away at any sense of manhood. And, and I, I'm with you on that. But the South, we got to agree, right? And when, when I hear cotton, I think this is what's interesting is that you say cotton, I hear slavery in my mind. But you don't hear slavery when you say cotton. You think you think economics, you think Yes. Right. See, I yeah. think that's that's the it that's was, where the divide it was is. the main crop and other the the South is and was agrarian. Yes. And I and I see that as when I hear when I hear cotton, I hear black folks and free labor. That's what gets in my mind. And but you as you said, and I this is my year of being having an open mind. This is my and I, and I, I was listening to. It, I thought I said to myself, Marshall believes what he's saying. Oh yes, you do believe it. Yes, it's what I that's how I was raised hmm. in Virginia in the sixties. I played Confederate soldier. We all played Confederate yeah. soldier. I had a little Johnny Reb cannon that shot little plastic balls out the front, yeah. and yeah. we would play Confederate soldier. Uh, the war was eighteen sixty one to eighteen sixty five. There were three major battles in Winchester, Virginia, hmm. and I was very fortunate enough in the 1960s to be a child there and got to see the reenactments of the first, second, and third battle of Winchester hmm. on the same land 
that those battles were fought 100 hmm. years before. Hmm. I stood in the little south of Winchester in Strasburg, Virginia, up on a hill and looked down in the valley. Hmm. And I can see why a Strasburg farmer would defend that against an invading northern army. Slavery or not, they weren't 25%, only 25% mm. of the Confederate soldiers were slave owners. The gone with the wind, big plantations were rare. Most of the slave owners owned three, four, five slaves to help get their crops in. Yeah, you know, but I think it's probably fair to say also that it's a protection of a system, even though they couldn't take part in it. Um, I think ta Coach has kind of written a lot of great commentary on this, is that even for poor whites in the South, it was a protection of a system that allowed them to have status above slaves, right? Even if they're not holding slaves, I'm still protecting a system that gives me a plus one versus black folks. I don't think that was their motivation. I truly, truly don't. Let's fast forward, and I know we only have a few minutes. Um, this alt-right... And you were very clear to sort of distance sons of Confederate veterans from the alt-right movement and the neo-Nazis. But they have co-opted. They've taken the symbol that's probably, would you say, the most prized symbol for the sons of Confederate veterans, the flag, the Confederate flag? I would almost say our most prized symbols are the monuments. Over the flag? Yes. No. Because like a student brought up in your class, there's lots of Hmm. Confederate flags. In Virginia, many, many, many of the Confederate troops fought and died under the Virginia state flag. Yeah. Because these 13 states that left the Union didn't felt sovereign. Right. But these groups aren't using those flags. They're, they have they have really coalesced around the battle flag. The axe. battle flag. Yes. The X. Yeah. They have. And it's to our great dismay and disappointment that they've done that. Um Unfortunately, our group, the Sons of Confederate Veterans, who have legitimate right to these things and who these are our ancestors, have a quiet voice in the media compared to the flag-waving alt-right who screams and yells and gets the headlines. Hmm. That, and, and to that same regard, and I didn't bring this up in class, there was a Marist poll that came out two days after Charlottesville that said 62% of Americans favor leaving Confederate statues where they are. Hmm. Of those registered voters, 46% of the African-Americans said leave them up versus 44 that said take them down. Hmm. So even among the African-American community, 46% of the registered voters surveyed were okay with Confederate monuments being where they are. But a very loud and small minority is getting all the press and setting public opinion. Yeah, I think, I'll be honest with you, unfortunately, I don't think that it should have changed the game, but situations and occurrences like Charleston and Charlottesville, even though, you know, I grew up in East Texas and a town called Jasper in the early 1990s, you know, there was a black man that was drugged four miles, body dismembered, um, clearly a hate crime. And I remembered something that my grandfather told me. He said, you know, here in East Texas, you you know someone's racist because they'll put the flag up. Like they the stickers up in the back window, you know not to go near that guy. Mm-hmm. I get to to the East Coast and then I f- I realize it's a little more veiled, it's a little more sophisticated. 
when it comes to folks who had racist views, it tends to come out later, but it wasn't as easily identifiable as I saw mm. in East Texas. For me, as a as a uh, father of five, I just I fear for my kids, uh, especially in a state like this where you've got these concealed gun. You know, mm. I'm from East Texas, and I hunted deer and rabbits and quail, you name it. But the fact that someone can have a concealed weapon can bring it on the campus of the University of Texas. Um, I'm fearful for the environment that that's been that's here, and I don't know. I'll be honest with you. I don't know how we fix it. You have any thoughts on if there's a fix to this divide that we're experiencing? No, I'm a white guy. I'm afraid of guns on campus, too. Are you? Yes. Oh, my God. It's good to hear there's fear across the board. I I don't think that runs along racial lines. I think (laughs) crazy's crazy. Yeah. And if if someone starts randomly shooting people on the mall, they're going to not necessarily pick a color. Yes. All right. We're going to – I'm going to give you three questions. Are you on Twitter? I am not. You got to get on Twitter. Two more questions. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, listen, on Twitter, there's this rule that you have 160 characters. Uh-huh. Okay. And assume, Marshall, that this is your last day on earth and the good Lord hands you a phone and says, you need to, you got to send one last tweet out to the world. What would you, how would you sign off to the world in 160 characters? um oh my goodness that's 160 characters you have a lot to say but you're gonna gonna have to be really um that the confederate soldier fought nobly and bravely for a cause he believed in and fought for his state and his nation Mm. you may be running over 160 Uh uh-oh that may be two tweets Uh uh, all right right, and i wasn't done yet (laughs) you're still going (laughs) All right, hold on. Here's number two. Let's say that you could create a class that would be mandatory for every college student in the world. So we want to know what would be the title of that class. So you're going to teach something to every college student, regardless of what country it is. What would be the title of a class that you would mandate that everybody take? The true history of the war between the states and its varied causes. Hmm. You had that one ready. <laughs> yeah, they're ready. Final thoughts. I want to get off of race and civil war, and and let's just hear if you had one piece of advice from your life for people just to succeed, to get ahead. What's one piece of advice you would you would give someone? Love your brother. Love your brother. Have that? tolerance. Hmm. Have diversity. Understand. Have the empathy you mentioned in your class hmm. that. It's about empathy. And I think we in this world today are real quick to judge still based on what somebody looks like without going any deeper into the empathy of that person, their backstory, their understanding. And I think we need to share that and have open communications about our shared experiences. And from that, we can grow together in uh, unity. Hmm. Marshall Davis, we don't agree on a lot, but I really appreciate you coming to campus, sharing with my students, being here on the tribe, and uh, thank you for coming to the 40 Acres. We appreciate it. Well, thank you for reaching out to me. I was, it was great to be in your class, and I'm glad to be on the tribe. Enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. All right, tribe. Thank you so much. And I mean that. Thank you for listening to today's show. 
For show notes and to get goodies to all of the links from the show, visit a tribe called yes.com. That's a tribe called yes.com. And I have one ask for you. If you like the show, give us a rating on iTunes or Stitcher. It would really help us to spread the gospel of the tribe. And finally, special thanks to Samantha Skinner and Jacob Weiss, our co-producers and partners in crime, for serving up incredible episodes every single week from the University of Texas. Now go out there this week, slay some dragons, and keep saying yes. Yes.